Hey, I'm Eric Huffman. I'm the lead pastor of The Story Houston, a new church taking shape right now inside the loop of the world's greatest city. For the months of May and June, we're gonna be talking about friendships and the importance of friendships. You know, when we were kids, we all knew friendships were incredibly important. We grew up though, didn't we, and something changed. We started prioritizing other things over friendships. But you know, that's not really the way the Bible says life should work. The Bible actually says that being a good friend is as important as being a good spouse or being a good parent. I hope that this series of sermons and this sermon in particular inspires deeper conversations between you and your friends that help you build the kinds of friendships that last a lifetime. All right, guys, uh, we are going to continue uh, this series. Is anyone sick of hearing about friendship yet? This is part eight. <laughs> of our series on friendship. So I've never done a nine-part sermon series, but after next week, we will have done a nine-week sermon series on friendship. And so uh, it's, uh, we've really dug deep, and I'm glad that we have. I'm, I'm happy with the ground that we've covered so far. Uh, today and next Sunday is going to be a little bit different than what we've talked about before. To this point in the series, we have been talking about the value of platonic friendships which is so important. Biblically, it's as important to be a good platonic friend as it is to be a good father, as it is to be a good husband, as it is to be a good spouse or a good parent. You know, uh, being a good platonic friendship matters just as much, biblically speaking. Uh, and today, I, we just couldn't end this series without actually talking about romantic relationships. And the importance of friendship within romantic relationships like dating and marriage. So we're gonna be talking more about dating, a little bit about marriage today too. Uh, and next Sunday is going to be all about um, marriage and the importance of friendship in marriage, specifically marriages that are struggling. And how can emphasizing the return of friendship to your marriage uh, be part of, of turning yet that marriage around? So if that's kind of where you're at or you have a friend that's in a troubled marriage or going through a tough season, make sure that you let them know that next week will be a good time to come and, and maybe be inspired to uh, turn it uh, around. What's really interesting to me as we talk about uh, singleness and dating, though, is the fact that for the first time in our nation's history, uh, the majority of adults in America are single and not married. So single people are the majority now, and that is a first in American history. Um, it's not very common in world history. And so the, the, the idea that people aren't getting married as much as they were before. I don't know, it concerns me a little bit. That's not really what I'm here to talk about today. I'm not here to raise any uh, you know, red flags or like alarm bells or anything, but, but what's interesting to me is the reasons why. Why are people choosing not to get married anymore? And uh, because the same number of people still want to get married someday, they're just not getting married now. So the question is why? Divorce is a big part of it, and we'd be foolish to say it isn't, because people that are divorced, they've been married and are divorced, they're listed among the single population, right? Which is fine, but a bigger part of it is that people are really uh, just waiting longer to get married in the first place. So the average millennial woman will get married when she's 28 years old. Now, that may not seem like a big deal. We're used to that, and that's okay, I'm, it's fine. There's advantages to waiting, right? But I just wanted you to see that it's different because a generation ago, that number was more like 23 or 24 years old. Two generations ago, the average woman got married in America by age 21. And so this is changing rapidly. And the reasons why are interesting. And I know a lot of you are thinking, well, it's money, it's career, it's education, 
All of those reasons have merit. Um, and some of you are thinking it's the dating scene and it's impossible to find a decent human being on the dating scene, and I hear that completely. But I think the number one reason, the most common reason why people are waiting longer than ever to get married is because there is this fear of being wrong, this fear of choosing the wrong person, this fear of settling down with someone who's not the one, and, and kind of winnowing down this field of potentially thousands of candidates to just one. That's really intimidating. And the dating apps, you know, OkCupid okay, and Match.com and Tinder, they've literally put thousands of candidates at our fingertips. And so it's a paradox of choice. Are you familiar with that, that term? Like when you go buy ice cream and there's, you know, vanilla, vanilla bean and French vanilla, you're going to pick French vanilla and you're going to be great with that. But if there's 70 different flavors and you really want butter pecan and mint chocolate chip, but you get French vanilla anyway, you're going to carry butter pecan in the back of your mind for the rest of your life or until you can go back and get butter pecan. It's the paradox of choice. I want a little bit of everything, you know, because it all looks so good, and why do I have to choose just one? I was reading this book by this uh, NYU sociology professor who said the single greatest reason people are waiting longer to marry is because they're waiting for their soulmate, and they won't settle for less. And now, I did a whole sermon series on dating about 10 months ago. More than half of you were not here for that. And so I'm not going to rehash how much I hate the term soulmate and, and how I think it's a trick that Hallmark and Disney have played on all of us to make money off of us. But, but the point is, they're waiting for the perfect person to come along. And when that pers perfect person doesn't appear, they just wait longer and longer to uh, get married. No judgment, right? I'm just stating the facts, right? When I was a kid, uh, I used to listen to a lot of, uh, of country music because that was all they had on the radio in East Texas. And uh, it, the, the early to mid-90s were really the last great sort of bastion of, Christian, of, of country music in, in country music history. It was, it was pre-Shania Twain, pre uh, pre, uh, uh, like, Billy Ray Cyrus. Uh, it, was, it was when Garth Brooks was still Garth Brooks, like before he was Chris Gaines, whatever that thing was, when he grew a soul patch, and that's Garth Brooks, Chris Gaines, alter ego, whatever. And I don't know why he had a thing called Greatest Hits, because he only released one album. Anyway, so Chris, you know, this was when country music was still country music, and Garth Brooks had a hit song pre-Chris Gaines. He had a hit song called Unanswered Prayers. Anyone familiar with Unanswered Prayers? Should I sing it right now? No? Okay. No. I could. I could. This song was so popular within Christian circles, like my Bible Belt church, that it actually became a worship song at my church. We sang it in worship services. Not even lying to you. We sang it with the soundtrack on cassette tape. You know, uh, Garth Brooks' Unanswered Prayers. If you're unfamiliar, the premise of the song is basically this, and I don't have a problem with this part of it. He says that sometimes God won't answer your prayer or will say no to your prayer because he has something better for you that he wants to give you later, which is a theological idea that I'm, I'm pretty okay with, right? But it's the analogy that he uses to get there that's a little bit troubling in retrospect <laughs> because the analogy that he uses is his high school sweetheart, this angel that he used to date in high school. And he used to pray at night that he would do anything that God asked of him if God would just give him this woman. 
If God would just let him marry this one person, she is the woman of my dreams. I want to spend my life with her. God, please just let me have this one. But God did not answer that prayer, or at least he didn't answer with a yes, because they broke up and went their separate ways. Garth Brooks went and married some other woman. A few years later, he's back in his hometown watching a high school football game when he and his new wife run into that high school sweetheart of his. And apparently, judging by the song, like, the years have just not been kind to this poor woman. <laughs> Something has happened. Something has changed. Garth Brooks says, she wasn't quite the angel I remembered in my dreams. <laughs> and I don't know, maybe a few more pounds, a few less teeth or something. And, and anyway, he, he says in this, in this song, he says, I looked at her and then I looked at my wife, who we can assume must have been super smoking hot, because he says, right then and there at a high school football game, I got on my knees and thanked God for unanswered prayers. <laughs> Ouch. Right? Now, there is so much that's wrong with this song, I don't really know where to begin. First of all, who does Garth Brooks think he is? How arrogant is Garth Brooks? He wasn't quite the angel I remembered in my dreams. Like, you don't think for a minute she thanks her lucky stars every time she sees Chris Gaines on CMT for unanswered prayers? Whew, dodge the bullet there, you know. Um, uh, you know, and, and in addition uh, to that, some, some of my problem uh, with, with this, uh, the real issue with this, is Garth Brooks's assumption that had he married that one, had he chosen that one, his high school sweetheart, that he would have grown unhappy with her, that she wouldn't have been enough for him, that he would have missed out on something or someone better. It's that mentality, I think, that really haunts a lot of people on the dating scene today. That if I choose this one and someone better comes along later, I will have regrets. Uh, and and that's, that's a cultural lie that we're telling ourselves. Because if we are believers in the grace of God and how the grace of God changes us, the truth then would be that if he had chosen the first woman, if he had chosen her and loved her well, if he had been Jesus to her and served her and laid his life down for her, that she would have grown more attractive to him and not less. Regardless of what happened with her physically, if he loved her the way Jesus first loved him, she would have grown more attractive over time and not less. He would have fallen more in love with her and not less and they would have grown closer together and not farther apart because that is how the love of God works. You see, our assumption is that attraction plus romance, the spark, equals relationship. And those are the elements of a true, lasting relationship. But that is false. The truth is that attraction matters, and attraction matters, of course, the spark matters. But the equation goes more like this. Attraction plus friendship times choice equals romance, which is compounded over time. Every time you make that choice, the romance, it grows over time. 
So of course attraction and chemistry are important in your dating life. Of course they are important in a marriage. But I'm telling you, and any person who's been in a marriage and struggled will tell you that if you're banking on your chemistry to take you anywhere together, it's not going to get you very far at all. The chemistry, the spark, the butterflies, the physical attraction, that's all fine. But if that's what you're depending on to carry the relationship, you're setting yourself up for some pretty hard times ahead. And the reason why we're spending any time on this at all with a sermon is because we love each other and we want what's best for each other. And 90 to 95% of you are either already married and chances are some of you that are married are, are, are struggling through a tough season of your marriage. Or you're divorced and hoping to be remarried. Or you're single and, and seeking marriage one day soon. Now, if, uh, if you're married and you got married thinking your chemistry would carry you, you're probably struggling now. And I, with today's sermon, but especially next week's sermon, I want to give you some reasons to hope and to hold on. But today, if you're single and you're dating, I want to inspire you today to think about your dating life differently than maybe you've thought about it before. To think about your, the way that you're dating today differently so that you can set yourself up for the kind of marriage you dream about tomorrow. You may not know this, uh, the Bible actually begins with marriage. It begins with a wedding. It also ends with a wedding in the book of Revelation, a different kind of of wedding there, but it, it's bookended by two different wedding ceremonies. The first one is in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2, God makes the man out of the dust of the earth. The man is all alone. God says, I'll make you some animals to keep you company. And Adam's like, thank you, but I need something more. And, and so God makes Eve. God makes Eve and says uh, that she is his helper, his partner, and that word historically has been misinterpreted, misunderstood, often by Christian theologians, Bible scholars, who have used that word helper in a pejorative sense, in a, in a condescending manner, to say that women are somehow beneath men, just here to serve and help men. But that is not at all a biblically accurate way of looking at that word. It is a Hebrew word, ezer, that's used in Genesis chapter 2. Ezer is a word you think you've never used, but you have. You just sang it in a song, verse 2 of, uh, of, of the hymn we sang earlier, here I raise my Ebenezer. What you're really saying is Ebenezer, which is a compound word in Hebrew, which means stone of help, or my stone of help. Here I raise my stone of help. And it is a reference to the Old Testament, lifting up a stone of help as a symbol of the way God has helped you. And so, uh, again and again, the Bible refers to God as Ezer, as helper, as your help the same way that it refers to Eve for Adam. So far from being a pejorative word or, or, or subjugating Eve to be beneath Adam, this actually lifts Eve up in status as Adam's equal. And taken on the whole, the Bible interprets marriage as two equal partners serving each other, helping each other, submitting to each other. So, um, Ezer is a word that is tied up in this biblical concept, right? This concept of covenant, this concept of friendship. I don't know if you've ever had a non-believing friend come to you and ask you why it is you believe what you believe, why you believe the things that are in the Bible, or what the Bible is all about. But if you have, or if you ever do hear that question from a friend, I hope that you'll be ready to say that the Bible is a story that's all about friendship. 
The nature and essence of friendship. I grew accustomed in the past to saying the Bible is a love story. And in a way, it is a love story. There's all kinds of different elements in the Bible, right? There's love, there's, uh, there's uh, sex, there's betrayal, there's suspense, there's war, uh, there's politics, there's death in the Bible. But all of it contributes to this story of friendship, of God proposing friendship to us. God saying, in a sense, will you be my friends? That is the story of Scripture. That is the story of the gospel. That's why Jesus came, right? Jesus says in, in John chapter 15, I came so that I could call you friends. And then he said, the way that you'll know that I'm your friend is I will lay down my life for you so that we will be in friendship together. That is the story of the Bible. And at its best, that should be the story of marriage. And if you're married, I just want you to have that in your mind as your vision. If you're dating, I also want you to have that in mind as your vision of the future. That my marriage will be a reflection of this kind of friendship that God proposes in the Bible. That my marriage will reflect God's friendship with us. Because just like the Bible is, the marriage is full of all kinds of different elements. Good marriages are full of love and uh, romance and sex and betrayal and politics and war and <laughs> mystery and death, you know. But at the end of the day, a marriage that lasts is really the story of an extraordinary friendship between two people. A marriage that lasts is really the story of two people that choose to be friends instead of enemies. So, if you're dating, I want you to know three things about what's happening with dating right now. And this is very simple elementary stuff here. But first, most people say they want marriage. The overwhelming majority of people, even millennials, still say they want to be married one day. Number two, most people do not understand that marriage is about friendship. Number three, therefore, most people do not date for friendship. Do you see the issue here? Marriage is about one thing, but we're dating as though it's about something else. Marriage is about friendship, but we're dating as though it's about romance. Think about what people are looking for in the dating scene. Think about all the articles that you read and all the things you hear about what people are looking for. If you're single, what you've said you're looking for in the dating scene. It's always the same. It's always about something you know, physical for a lot of people, like certain physical attributes, a certain body type, or certain facial features, or eye color, hair, whatever. Uh, and as people get older, those things, uh, you, know, you start marking things off the list. Like <laughs> you start being a little less choosy as you get older on the dating scene, right? But, but then there's like the money stuff. You know, I want somebody that's financially viable. I want somebody who you know, doesn't already have kids, or I want somebody who Whatever, you know, uh, somebody who, who comes with a good, like, social status. You know, things like that. Here's what I've never heard anyone say when I've asked them what they're looking for on the dating scene. I've never heard anyone say, I'm, I'm dating to find a friend. <laughs> I'm dating for friendship. I'm dating, I'm looking for my BFF on, on Tinder. <laughs> no one ever says that. And it just makes me wonder, are we getting this all wrong? Because if you really listen to culture, culture tells you, avoid the friend zone. Guys, have you heard that? Avoid the friend zone. No girl will sleep with a guy in the friend zone. You know, you don't want to be in the friend zone. Don't be nice. Don't be so nice that you get put into the, the friend zone. 
You've got to be manly and tough, you know, whatever. I just wonder if we're, if we're missing something here. Because if marriage is what we think it is, I, I wonder if we're getting this all wrong. What if? Listen close. I'm about to say a lot of words, but they're very important words. What if the happiest marriages are the ones where two people realize it's easier to foster amazing sexual intimacy within friendship than it is to foster true friendship within a superficial physical connection? What if that's what true marriage is? Two people saying, we can take an awesome friendship and learn to meet each other's needs everywhere else. But if all we are is about meeting each other's needs in this one arena, it's really tough to superimpose a friendship onto that. What if we are, because our culture so idolizes physical sexuality, what if we are missing the true nature of marriage? What beauty are we missing out on there? Here's the thing about marriage that we often forget is that those who do make it to the altar are going to stand there before God and everybody and they're going to lie through their teeth because they're going to say the wedding vows and no one can keep the wedding vows. Have you ever heard the wedding vows and really listened to what people promise to do at their wedding day? Do you ever roll your eyes secretly when people are making these promises because no one can keep them? Until we are parted by death, I will love and cherish you until we, until we die. It's a long time to cherish someone. <laughs> no one lives up to this. Everybody who says these words lies. And within a few days, months, whatever, they break the promises they make before God and everyone. So the, the question is, the question is, why do we, we make promises that we can't keep? Why do we as the church sanction these promises? Why are we okay with people? Why do I stand there with a straight face when I'm reading these vows to people and they say things that I know that they will always break. This all comes back to this conversation of covenant. If you have your study guides, please, please make note of what we're about to talk about. This is the most important concept of the day, all right? Covenant. You have been told that marriage is a contract. You've heard that marriage is a piece of paper. You've heard from people who are cohabitating. Maybe you've been cohabitating with someone and they've told you, or maybe you yourself have said, why go get married? It's just a piece of paper. It's just a contract. I'm telling you, marriage, if you're a believer, marriage was always intended to be more than a contract, more than a promise. There is a difference. The biblical concept of covenant goes way back to the Old Testament where God would say to the people, this is who I am and this is who you are. This is what I will do for you and I will be faithful. This is what I will ask you to do for me and I will pray for you to be faithful. And God would say, I do. And the people would say, I do for a few days. And then they would say, I don't know anymore. And then they would say, I don't. And then they would say, I do again. You know, but what happens with a covenant is that once it is broken, it is not forever null and void. This is the difference. You break a contract, then you need a new contract because the one you had was broken. It's null, it's void. You break a promise, it's empty, it's meaningless. But a covenant regenerates when it's broken. Like a broken bone, a covenant can heal. A covenant can be renewed and restored and made stronger than it was before by the grace of God, by forgiveness, by mercy, by understanding and compassion. Covenants can be re remade, reborn. And, and uh, this is something we often 
uh, fail to see the distinction between covenant and contract. Marriage was meant to be a covenant. The reason we let people stand up and say those things that we know no one can ever keep, those vows, is because the vows are an invocation of a covenant between two people. Of course they will break it, but by God's grace, they can come back from that. And they can be made stronger. And if you ever listen in at a wedding, you will hear that from the very beginning, the earliest stages of Christian marriage, it was always intended to be about friendship first. And we know that every Bible passage that we choose in weddings, with the exception of Song of Songs, which can be explained otherwise, but the, 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 most of the passages that we choose are friendship passages. I'd like to show you a few. Uh, so these are three of the most commonly used Bible verses at weddings. Maybe if you're married, you use one of these at your, at your wedding. 1 Corinthians 13, obviously the most popular. Eric Mingle already talked about how that's really about friendship within the church. But here we go. Ruth, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. One of the most romantic verses you will ever hear. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There, I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well if even death parts me from you. Can you see Ryan Gosling in the rain saying this <laughs> to Rachel McAdams? That's how we picture it. I don't think when we listen to this at a, at a wedding, we hear a young woman saying this to her older mother-in-law, but that's what's happening. As a young woman is proposing friendship to her mother-in-law, because both of them have been recently widowed and they need each other to survive. So not as romantic as you might think. It's about friendship. It's a bond. It's another verse from the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes. This is my favorite passage to use at weddings. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up the other. But woe to the one who is alone and falls and does not have another to help. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though one might prevail against another, two will withstand one. Can you tell I've read that before? A few times. And, um, and, and you know, this is just a so romantic and passionate. Two are better than one. We'll lie down together. Woo, yeah. It's going to be great. It's about marriage except for this unfortunate last Line, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. That's awkward for a marriage. <laughs> there is no third cord allowed. Some of you are like, well, it's Jesus. No, this is Ecclesiastes before Jesus. You know what I'm saying? A threefold cord, that's about friendship. This was always a passage about friendship, but we use it at weddings because we know at its heart, at its core, that's what marriage is. Another uh, popular one from the New Testament, Colossians chapter, 12, chapter uh, 3, verses uh, 12 through 14. This is one, uh, y'all can read it on your study guides. This is a lot like 1 Corinthians 13. So sappy and romantic and sweet. But again, this was written to brothers and sisters, not husbands and wives. People learning in a church to love each other like Jesus loved us. There are two things that all of these passages have in common. First of all, they are all read at weddings. And second of all, they are all about friendship. Friendship, friendship. My wife and I have a very complex relationship. We're both pastors. Um, we have a multicultural marriage. Uh, she's from Ecuador, and I'm from East Texas. And uh, so we're both from the third world. And uh, <laughs> I just... <laughs> 
That was not in the script. I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, most of all, the reason our relationship is strange is because we work together. We share in nine by eight office, 40 hours a week. So those of you who are married, who are married uh, just imagine. Imagine spending 40 hours a week in close confines with your, uh, with your bride or your groom, and then going home at the end of the day and complaining about that jerk you work with. <laughs> Fun, man, it's fun, let me tell you. But, uh, but that's, that's our life. On top of everything else, our, our kids and our marriage, we, we work together and we know exactly, because of that, we know exactly how to get under each other's skin. We spent so much time together, we know exactly which buttons to push, man. We want to push some buttons, and man, can she push my buttons. See, she, uh, this woman drives me crazy sometimes, y'all. She just, sometimes, man, she has no idea how to load a dishwasher properly. She won't let me get an Xbox, <laughs> even though it's just because I want to spend more time with the kids. <laughs> and it's Father's Day. <laughs> she loves to vacuum. She vacuums all the time, but then she'll finish vacuuming a floor and she'll leave the vacuum in the middle of the floor. She just vacuumed. She'll just leave it there and walk away with the cord just all over the place. I'm like, it was cleaner before. Just don't vacuum. Oh, my gosh. I'm sure that she has some things that, about me that get on her nerves, but I, I just can't think of any right now. <laughs> Here's the thing, and I mean this, man. She drives me crazy, but I, I, love, I love this woman. And uh, if all we had was physical attraction, man, she would have been done a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, we both would have. If all we had was chemistry and spark, if we depended on that to get us through everything we've been through, there's no way we would be standing here together 17 years in. But we've got more than just that. And as the stuff of life has tried to wear us down, there's been more substance there. Because ever since we met, when we were 18 years old, when we met, we began a friendship first. And th there was always physical attraction. There was always a spark, at least from, from my end, you know. But, uh, but because of the way we set up our lives, and this is not a judgmental thing at all, and I don't mean this every, it's not necessarily everyone's story. It's okay. But the way our lives work, our sex life and all that stuff didn't begin until two years later, after we were married. So what that meant for us is that the whole dating season was about friendship first. What that meant for us was that every date we went on, I wasn't trying to impress her enough or spend enough money on, uh, on her so that she would take me back to her room that night. You see the difference? All I cared about and all we wanted when we were dating was to know each other more and to know each other's past and to get to know each other's you know, little quirks and what makes them happy, what makes her sad, what scares her, what excites her, you know, things like that. And I knew all of that stuff the day we got married. And then we were able to add on the physical intimacy and the sex stuff, all of that onto the foundation of friendship that we had already had when we got married because we began with friendship. And, and here, is, here is the thing. 
when you set that precedent from the very beginning, it doesn't end on your wedding day. When you set the precedent of friendship first in your dating life, you will continue to put friendship first in your marriage. And it's the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen. I'm not saying your salvation at all depends on like getting married. Paul in the New Testament says it's better to stay single than it is to, to, to be married, right? I'm just saying that a great marriage can be such a potent reflection of the kind of love that God has for us, the kind of love that renews us and makes us better. And, and I'm proud to say that 17 years in, I am still dating my wife. And we're still dating for friendship first. Now, now there's all these benefits too, you know, like it's just marriage at its best, friendship with benefits. What else is it like? Friendship first, all the other stuff is fantastic. Are you weirded out yet by your pastors? Gosh, it's a beautiful thing. And I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say on Father's Day that I learned it from my dad, who's uh, with us today. And uh, he showed me and gave me the greatest uh, gift a father can give a little boy uh, by showing me how to respect and love a woman as a friend. Even though there were hard times and struggles and there wasn't a lot of money and they were very young and he and my mother are more than husband and wife of 40 plus years. They are best friends and always have been. I remember riding in the back seat of our car when I was a kid and watching them do things that you don't do when you're just trying to be romantic and attractive to each other. You know, they would bite each other's fingernails and they would, uh, they would pass gas and blame it on each other and they sang, uh, Jeremiah was a bullfrog like a billion times together, just being silly and being friends. This is not Hollywood romance. It's much, much better. One time I was asked to say a prayer of blessing at a couple's uh, 35th anniversary celebration. And the man, the groom, got, the husband got up and uh, offered a toast. And he said a lot of the things you would expect someone in his position to say. She's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. She's my best friend, blah, 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 you know. And uh, then he said something I don't think anyone expected or wanted to hear a 60-something-year-old man say about a 67-year-old woman. He said, she's sexier now than she ever has been. And there was a collective groan throughout the room. <laughs> And I had seen her pictures from when she was younger. She, when she was in her 20s, she was literally a beauty queen. And uh, honestly, when I was looking at those pictures, I was having trouble seeing her in the woman that was with us in that room. I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but it was just, it was different, right? Time had done its thing, right? There were wrinkles, and there was a few extra pounds, there was gray hair and all this stuff. And I'm not sure I believed him when he said she's sexier to me now than she was when she was 22 or whatever. Then he finished his toast, and she stood up to hug him, and he put his arm around her waist, and he pulled her in as close as he could, and he looked into her eyes, and he laid on her the longest, wettest French kiss <laughs> I've ever witnessed. I didn't think it was ever going to end, and I just felt awful for their grandkids who were there. <laughs> 
But I realized that he meant it, man. He meant it. He meant it when he said that she was sexier than she had ever been. Because to him, when he saw this woman, he didn't see the physical specimen. He didn't see her body. He saw her heart. Over time, God had taught him to not just see her face. He saw her, her mind. He could read her mind and she could read his. Just one glance and they could see each other's pain and they could see each other's joy and they knew each other's thoughts because over time they had chosen to be friends instead of adversaries. And they know everything about each other inside and out. And even though they had been through hard things, it was their friendship that got them through. Not their romance and not their sexual intimacy stuff. It was their friendship that got them through it. If you're here today and you're single and you're dating, I, I want to help you get a vision for where your dating life will go. And what it is that you're aiming for. If you don't have a vision in mind, you will be aimless in your search on the dating scene. Now, my question is, how would your approach to dating change if you began to look for friendship first? Before all the physical stuff, before all the money stuff, guys and ladies, how would it change on the dating scene for you if you began to prioritize friendship above everything else? If you're in a committed relationship, maybe you're dating exclusively, maybe you're cohabitating, maybe you're engaged, how are you putting your friendship before everything else? Are you prioritizing your friendship first? And if you're married, particularly if you're married and it's a struggle right now, and it's been up and down and you're going through a hard time, today and next week, I want to encourage you to not give up hope. Because just as God can restore a person's broken soul, there is no marriage that's too broken. There's no marriage that's beyond redemption. There's no marriage that's beyond the reach of God's grace. Your covenant that you made at that altar, it can be mended and healed and made stronger than it was before by the grace of God. But it has to start with friendship. And as a lead into next week's sermon, i got to ask you, if you're married and if you're happy or if you're struggling, man, in your marriage, are you putting your friendship first? More importantly than that, I'd especially ask the guys, are you dating your wife? Are you still dating her? Are you still trying to take her out regularly and getting to know her? Her person, right? Her heart. Or have you just allowed resentment and bitterness to build up in you? Have you lost one too many arguments? Did you think she was just there to meet your needs and when she didn't meet those expectations, you grew angry on the inside and you just grew passive aggressive and you became someone else because that bitterness and rage just ate you alive? Is that where your heart is at today? If it is, I'm just calling you to repentance. Calling you to repentance, men and women alike. If your heart has been eaten alive by resentment, repent. Admit that you've been wrong. Admit that you have failed to be Jesus to your spouse, to your significant other, and lay down your life for them again the way Jesus laid down his life for you when he came to call you a friend. Put their needs before your own. 
Put their heart before your own. And be a friend before everything else. Remember, marriage at its best is a reflection of God's friendship with us. The temptation here is to look at happy couples and say they are so lucky in love and to kind of hate them a little bit. They're just so lucky they found each other. They're perfect together. I'm telling you, that is not how it works. Any couple that's lasted longer than a few years together and maintained any semblance of happiness together, it's because they've chosen to be friends instead of adversaries. And friendship doesn't just happen, it's a choice. And it requires sacrifice and patience and love beyond that which you think you're capable of. I'm calling you today. Jesus calls you and compels you today to that kind of love, no matter where you are in your romantic relationship. He's calling you to that kind of love and to live that love with those closest to you. 